Hey there, literary thrill seekers. Ready for another wild ride into the Dickinson drama, Great Expectations? I know, I know, the excitement is palpable. Or maybe the scent of Mrs. Joe's spotless bliss has us all in a tizzy. Welcome back to The Page Pedestrian, where we're diving headfirst into Pip's world of orphans, mysterious benefactors, and expectations that are about as great as a deflated balloon at a birthday party. But hey, that's the Dickens charm, right? Quick recap time. In the opening chapter, we meet our main man Pip as he stumbles through the marshes and bumps into an escaped convict. Cue the dramatic music because life's about to get as thrilling as a one-person parade. In the second chapter, we are introduced to the delightfully sinister character of Mrs. Joe. We come to learn that she's Pip's sister and the reigning champion of domestic tyranny. Mrs. Joe's obsession with cleanliness could rival a drill sergeant on steroids. If only she put that energy into inventing self-cleaning houses, we'd be living in pristine perfection by now. And don't even get me started on Joe Gargery, the lovable, bumbling brother-in-law. He's like the comic relief in a Shakespearean tragedy adding a touch of chaos to Pip's oh-so-harmonious family life. The first two chapters set the stage for a tale of ambition, social class, and unfulfilled dreams. So buckle up, dear listeners, because Great Expectations is taking us on a roller coaster through Victorian society. It's as if Dickens is saying, Hold on tight, folks, and don't forget your sense of humour. You're gonna need it. So whether you're a literary enthusiast or just looking for a good story, grab your tea and your crumpets and join me as we embark on this journey through the pages of Charles Dickens' masterpiece, Great Expectations. I'm your host, Danny, and you're listening to The Page Pedestrian, where your ears do the reading and the classics come alive in every episode. Chapter 3 It was a rimy morning and very damp. I'd seen the damp lying on the outside of my little window, as if some goblin had been crying there all night and using the window for a pocket handkerchief. Now, I saw the damp lying on the bare hedges and spare grass like a coarsest sort of spider's web, hanging itself from twig to twig and blade to blade. On every rail and gate, wet lay clammy, and the marsh mist was so thick that the wooden finger on the post directing people to our village, a direction which they never accepted for they never came there, was invisible to me until I was quite close under it. Then, as I looked up at it, while it dripped, it seemed to my oppressed conscience like a phantom devoting me to the hulks. The mist was heavier. Yet, when I got out upon the marshes, so that instead of my running at everything, everything seemed to run at me, this was very disagreeable to my guilty mind. The gates and dikes and banks came bursting at me through the mist as if they cried as plainly as could be. A boy with somebody else's pork pie, stop him! The cattle came upon me with like suddenness, staring out of their eyes and steaming out of their nostrils. Hello, young thief. One black ox with a white cravat on, who even had to my awakened conscience something of a clerical air, fixed me so obstinately with his eyes and moved his blunt head round in such an accusatory manner as I moved around that I blubbered to him. I, I couldn't help it, so it wasn't for myself I took it. Upon which he put down his head, blew a cloud of smoke out of his nose and vanished with a kick up of his hind legs and a flourish of his tail. All this time I was getting on toward the river, but however fast I went, I couldn't warm my feet, to which the damn cold seemed riveted, as the iron was riveted to the leg of the man I was running to meet. I knew my way to the battery pretty straight, for I'd been down there on a Sunday with Joe, and Joe, sitting on an old gun, had told me when I was apprenticed to him, regularly bound, we would have such larks there. However, in the confusion of the mist, I found myself at last too far to the right and consequently had to try back along the riverside, on the bank of the loose stones above the mud and the stakes that staked the tide out. 
Making my way along here with all dispatch, I just crossed the ditch which I knew to be very near the battery, and I just scrambled up the mound beyond the ditch, when I saw the man sitting before me. His back was towards me, and he had his arms folded and was nodding forward, heavy with sleep. I thought he would be more glad if I came upon him with his breakfast, in that unexpected manner, so I went forward softly and touched him on the shoulder. He instantly jumped up and it was not the same man, but another man. And yet, this man was dressed in coarse grey too, and had a great iron on his leg and was lame and hoarse and cold, and was everything that the other man was, except that he had not the same face and had a flat, broad-brimmed, low-crowned felt hat on. All this I saw in a moment, for I had only a moment to see it in. He swore an oath at me, made a hit at me, it was a round weak blow that missed me and almost knocked himself down, for it made him stumble, and then he ran into the mist, stumbling twice as he went, and I lost him. It's the young man, I thought, feeling my heart shoot as I identified him. I dare say I should have felt a pain in my liver too if I had known where that was. I was soon at the battery after that, and there was the right man, hugging himself and limping to and fro as if he had never all night left off hugging and limping, waiting for me. He was awfully cold, to be sure. I half expected him to drop down before my face and die of deadly cold. His eyes looked so awfully hungry too, that I handed him the file and he laid it down on the grass. It occurred to me that he would have tried to eat it if he hadn't seen my bundle. He did not turn me upside down this time to get what I had, but left me right side upwards while I opened the bundle and emptied my pockets. "'What's in the bottle, boy?' said he. "'Brandy,' said I. He was already handing mince me down his throat in the most curious manner, more like a man who was putting it away somewhere in a violent hurry than a man who was eating it but he left off to take some of the liquor. He shivered all the while so violently that it was quite as much as he could do to keep the neck of the bottle between his teeth without biting it off. I think you've got the ague, said I. I'm much of your opinion, boy, said he. It's bad about here, I told him. You've been lying out on the meshes and their dreadful anguish, rheumatic too. I'll eat my breakfast afore their death of me, said he. I'd do that if I was going to be strung up their gallows as theirs over there directly afterwards. I'll beat the shiver so far, I'll bet you. He was gobbling mincemeat, meat bone, bread, cheese, and pork pie all at once, staring distressfully while he did so at the mist all around us, and sound some clink upon the river of breathing of beast upon the marsh, now gave him a start and he said suddenly, You're not a deceiving imp. You brought no one with you. No, sir, no. Nor give no one the office to follow you. No. Well, said he, I believe you. You'd be but a fierce young hound indeed, if at your time of life you could help hunt a wretched wormit hunted and near death and dunghill at this poor wretched wormit is. Something clicked in his throat as if he had works in him like a clock, and he was going to strike, and he smeared his ragged rough sleeve over his eyes. Pitting his desolation and watching him as he gradually settled upon the pie, I made bold to say, I'm glad you enjoy it. Did you speak? I... I said I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you, boy, I do. I had often watched a large dog of ours eating his food, and now I noticed a decided similarity between the dog's way of eating and the man's. The man took strong, sharp, sudden bites, just like the dog. He had swallowed or rather snapped up every mouthful, too soon, too fast, and he looked sideways here and there while he ate, as if he thought there was danger in every direction of somebody's coming to take the pie away. He was altogether too unsettled in his mind over it, to appreciate it comfortably, I thought, or to have anybody to dine with him without making a chop with his jaws at the visitor, in all of which particulars he was very like the dog. I'm afraid you won't leave any of it for him, 
said I, timidly, after a silence during which I had hesitated at the politeness of making the remark. There's no more to God where that came from. It was the certainty of this fact that impelled me to offer the hint. Leave Eddie for him? Who's him? said my friend, stopping in his crunching of pie crust. The young man that you spoke of, that was hit with you? Oh, <laughs> he returned with something like a gruff laugh. Him, yeah, yes. He don't want no whittles. I thought he looked as if he did, said I. The man stopped eating and regarded me with the keenest scrutiny and the greatest surprise. Looked? When? Just now. Where? Yonder, said I, pointing. Over there, when I found him nodding asleep and thought it was you. He held me by the collar and stared at me so that I began to think his first idea about cutting my throat had revived. Just like you, you know, only with a hat, I explained, trembling. And, and, I was very anxious to put this delicately. And with the same reason for wanting to borrow a file, didn't you hear the cannon last night? Then there was a firing, he said to himself. I wonder you shouldn't have been sure of that, I returned. For we heard it upon the home that's further away and we were shut in besides. Why, well, see now, said he. When a man's alone in these flats, with a light head and a light stomach and perishing of cold and once and he hears nothing all night but guns firing and voices calling, hears? He sees the soldiers, with the red coats lighted up and the torches carried afall, closing in around him. Hears his number called, hears himself challenged, hears the rattle of the muskets, hears the orders. Make ready, present, cover him steady, men, and eight hands on and there's nothing. Why, if I see one pursuing party last night coming up in order, damn him, with a tramp. Tramp, I see a hundred, and as to firing, why, I see the misshake with cannon, Arte it was broad day, but this man. He had said all the rest as if he had forgotten my being there. Did you notice anything in him? He had a badly bruised face, said I, recalling what I hardly knew I knew. Not here, exclaimed the man, striking his left cheek mercilessly with the flat of his hand. Yes, there. Where is he? He crammed what little food was left into the breast of his grey jacket. Show me where he went. I'll pull him down like a bloodhound. Curse the iron on my sore leg. Give us hold of that file, boy. I indicated in what direction the mist had shrewded the other man, and he looked up at it for an instant. But he was down on the rank, wet grass, filing at his iron like a madman, and not minding me or minding his own leg, which had an old chafe upon it, and was bloody. I was very much afraid of him again. Now that he had worked himself into a fierce hurry, I was likewise very afraid of keeping away from home any longer. I told him I must go, but he took no notice, so I thought the best thing I could do was to slip off. The last I saw of him, his head was bent over his knee and he was working hard at his fetter, muttering impatient imprecations at it and his leg. The last I heard of him, I stopped in the mist to listen, and the file was still going. Chapter 4 I fully expected to find a constable in the kitchen waiting to take me up. But not only was there no constable there, but no discovery had yet been made of the robbery. Mrs. Joe was prodigiously busy in getting the house ready for the festivities of the day, and Joe had been upon the kitchen doorstep to keep him out of the dustpan, an article into which his destiny always led him sooner or later when my sister was vigorously reaping the floors of her establishment. Where the deuce have you been? was Mrs. Joe's Christmas salutation when I and my conscience showed ourselves. I said I had been down to hear the carols. Ah, well, observed Mrs. Joe. You might have done worse. Not a doubt of that, I thought. Perhaps if I wasn't a blacksmith's wife, and was the same thing a slave with her apron never off, I should have been to hear the carols, said Mrs. Joe. I'm rather partial to the carols myself, and that's the best of the reason for my never hearing any. 
Joe, who had ventured into the kitchen after me as the dustpan had retired before us, drew the back of his hand across his nose with a conciliatory air when Mrs. Joe darted a look at him, and, when her eyes were withdrawn, secretly crossed his two forefingers and exhibited them to me as our token that Mrs. Joe was in a cross temper. This was so much her normal state that Joe and I would often, for weeks together, be as to our fingers like monumental crusaders to their legs. We were to have a superb dinner, consisting of a leg of pickled pork and greens and a pair of roast stuffed fowls. A handsome mince pie had been made yesterday morning, which accounted for the mincemeat not being missed, and the pudding was already on the boil. These extensive arrangements occasioned us to be cut off unceremoniously in respect of breakfast. For I ain't, said Mrs. Joe. I ain't a going to no formal cramming and busting and washing up now. With what I've got before me, I promise you. So we had our slices served out as if we were 2,000 troops on a forced march instead of a man and a boy at home, and we took gulps of milk and water with apologetic countenances from a jug on the dresser. In the meantime, Mrs. Joe put clean white curtains up and tacked a new flowered flounce across the wide chimney to replace the old one and uncovered the little state parlour across the passage, which was never uncovered at any other time, but passed the rest of the year in a cool haze of silver paper, which even extended to the four little white crockery poodles on the mantel shelf each with a black nose and a basket of flowers in its mouth, and each the counterpart of the other. Mrs. Joe was a very clean housekeeper, and had an exquisite art of making her cleanliness more uncomfortable and unacceptable than dirt itself. Cleanliness is next to godliness, and some people do the same by the religion. My sister, having so much to do, was going to church vicariously. That is to say, Joe and I were going. In his work clothes, Joe was a well-knit characteristic-looking blacksmith, in his holiday clothes, he was more like a scarecrow in good circumstances than anything else. Nothing that he wore then fitted him or seemed to belong to him, and everything that he wore then grazed him. On the present festive occasion, he emerged from his room when the blithe bells were going, the picture of misery in a full suit of Sunday penitentials. As to me, I think my sister must have had some general idea that I was a young offender from whom a policeman had taken up on my birthday and delivered over to her, to be dealt with according to the outrage majesty of the law. I was always treated as if I had insisted on being born in opposition to the dictates of reason, religion, and morality, and against the dissuading arguments of my best friends. Even when I was taken to have a new suit of clothes, the tailor had orders to make them like a kind of reformatory, and on no account to let me have the free use of my limbs. Joe and I, going to church, therefore, must have been a moving spectacle for compassionate minds. Yet, what I suffered outside was nothing to what I underwent within. I conceived the idea that the time when the bands were read, and when the clergyman said, Ye are now to declare it, would be the time for me to rise and propose a private conference in the vestry. I am far from being sure that I might not have but astonished our small congregation by resorting to this extreme measure, but for its being Christmas Day and no Sunday. Mr. Wopsle, the clerk at church, was to dine with us, and Mr. Hubble, the wheelwright, and Mrs. Hubble, and Uncle Pumblechook, Joe's uncle, but Mrs. Joe appropriated him, who was a well-to-do corn chandler in the nearest town and drove his own chase carts. The dinner hour was half past one. When Joe and I got home, we found the table laid, and Mrs. Joe dressed and the dinner dressing and the front door unlocked. It was never at any other time for the company to enter by, and everything most splendid. And still, not a word of robbery. The time came without bringing with it any reliefs to my feelings, and the company came. Mr. Wopsle, united to a Roman nose and a large, shining, bold forehead, had a deep voice, which he was uncommonly proud of. Indeed, it was understood among his acquaintances that if he could only give him his head, he would read the clergyman into fits. He himself confessed that if the church was thrown open, 
meaning to competition, he would not despair of making his mark in it. The church not being thrown open, he was, as I have said, our clerk. But he punished the amens tremendously, and when he gave out the psalm, always giving the whole verse, he looked all around the congregation first, as much as to say, You have heard, my friend overhead, oblige with your opinion of this style. I opened the door to the company, making it believe that it was a habit of ours to open that door, and I opened it first to see Mr. Wopsall, next to Mr. and Mrs. Hubble, and last of all, the Uncle Pumblechook. NB, I was not allowed to call him uncle under the severest penalties. Mrs. Joe, said Uncle Pumblechook, a large, hard-breathing, middle-aged, slow man with a mouth like a fish, dull staring eyes and sandy hair standing upright on his head, so that he looked as if he had just been all but choked and had the moment come too. I've brought you as the compliments of the season. I've brought you, mum, a bottle of sherry wine, and I've brought you, mum, a bottle of port wine. Every Christmas day, he presented himself as a profound novelty with exactly the same words and carrying the two bottles like dumbbells. Every Christmas day, Mrs. Joe replied as she now replied, Oh, Uncle Pumblechuck, this is kind. Every Christmas day, he retorted as he now retorted, It's no more than your merits. And now are you all bobbish? And how sixpence north of halfpence? Meaning me. We dined on these occasions in the kitchen and adjourned for the nuts and the oranges and the apples to the parlour, which was a change very like Joe's change from his working clothes to his Sunday dress. My sister was uncommonly lively on the present occasion, and indeed was generally more gracious in the society of Mrs. Hubble than in the other company. I remember Mrs. Hubble as a little, curly, sharp-edged person in sky blue who held a conventionally juvenile position because she had married Mr. Hubble, I don't know at what remote period, when she was much younger than he. I remember Mr. Hubble as a tough, high-shouldered, stooping old man of a sawdusty fragrance, with his legs extraordinarily wide apart, so that in my short days I always saw some miles of open country between them when I met him coming up the lane. Among this good company I should have felt myself, even if I hadn't robbed the pantry in a false position, not because I was squeezed in at an acute angle of the tablecloth, with the table in my chest and the pumblechukian elbow in my eye, nor because I was not allowed to speak, I didn't want to speak, nor because I was regulated with scaly tips of drumsticks of the fowls and with those obscure corners of pork of which the pig, when loving, had had the least reason to be vain. No, I should not have minded that if they would only have left me alone, but they wouldn't leave me alone. They seemed to think the opportunity lost if they failed to point the conversation at me every now and then and stick the point into me. I might have been an unfortunate little bull in a Spanish arena. I got so smartingly touched up by these moral goads. It began the moment we sat down to dinner. Mr. Wopsle said grace with a theatrical declamation, as it now appears to me something like a religious cross of the ghost in Hamlet with Richard III, and ended with a very proper aspiration that we might be truly grateful. Upon which my sister fixed me with her eye and said, in a low, reproachful voice, Do you hear that? Be grateful. Especially, said Mr. Pumblechook, be grateful, boy, to them which brought you up by hand. Mrs. Hubble shook her head and contemplating me with a mournful presentiment that I should come to no good, asked, Why is it that the young are never grateful? The moral mystery seemed too much for the company until Mr. Hubble tersely solved it by saying, Naturally vicious. Everyone then murmured, True and looked at me in a particularly unpleasant and personal manner. Joe's station and influence was something feebler, if possible, when there was company than when there were none. But he always aided and comforted me when he could, in some way of his own, and he always did so at dinner time by giving me gravy if there were any. There being plenty of gravy today, 
Joe spooned into my plate at this point about half a pint. A little later on in the dinner, Mr. Wopsall reviewed the sermon with some severity and intimated, in the usual hypothetical case of the church being thrown open, what kind of sermon he would have given them. After favouring them with some heads of that discourse, he remarked that he considered the subject of the day's homily ill-chosen, which was the less excusable, he added, when there were so many subjects going about. True again, said Uncle Pumblechook. You've hit it, sir. Plenty of subjects going around for them that to know how to put salt upon their tails. That's what's wanted. A man needn't go far to find a subject if he isn't ready with his salt box. Mr. Pumblechook added, after a short interval of reflection. Look at pork alone. There's a subject if you want a subject. Look at pork. True, sir. Many are moral for the young, returned Mr. Wopsle, and I knew he was going to lug me in before he said it. Might be deduced from that text. You listen to this, said my sister to me in severe parenthesis. Joe gave me some more gravy. Swine, pursued Mr. Wopsle in his deepest voice, pointing his fork at my blushes as if he were mentioning my Christian name. Swine were the companions of the prodigal. The collection of swine is to put before us and an example to the young. I thought this pretty well in him who had been praising up the pork for being so plump and juicy. What is detestable in a pig is more detestable in a boy. Or girl, suggested Mr. Hubble. Of course, or a girl, Mr. Hubble, assented Mr. Wopsle, rather irritably. But there is no girl present. Besides, said Mr. Pumblechook, turning sharp on me, Think what you've got to be grateful for. If you'd been born a squeaker, he was, if ever a child was, said my sister most emphatically. Joe gave me some more gravy. Well, but I mean a four-footed squeaker, said Mr. Pumblechook. If you had been born as such, where would you have been now? Not you. Unless in that form, said Mr. Wopsle, nodding toward the dish. But I don't mean in that form, sir, returned Mr. Pumblechook, who had an objection to being interrupted. I mean, enjoying himself with the elders and betters, improving himself with their conversation and rolling in the lap of luxury. Would he have been doing that? No, he wouldn't. And what would have been your destination? Turning on me again. You would have been disposed of for so many shillings according to the market price of the article. And Dunstable the butcher would have come up to you as you lay in your straw and he would have whipped you under his left arm and with his right he would have tucked up his frock to get a pent knife from out his waistcoat pockets and he would have shed your blood and had your life. No bringing up by hand then. Not a bit of it. Joe offered me more gravy, which I was afraid to take. He was a world of trouble to you, ma'am, said Mrs. Hubble, commiserating my sister. Trouble? echoed my sister. Trouble! And then entered on a fearful catalogue of all the illnesses I have been guilty of, and all the acts of sleeplessness I had committed, and all the high places I had tumbled from, and all the low places I had tumbled into, and all the injuries I had done myself, and all the times he had wished me in the grave, and I had contumaciously refused to go there. I think the Romans must have aggravated one another very much with their noses. Perhaps they became the restless people they were, in consequence. Anyhow, Mr. Wopsle's Roman nose so aggravated me during the recital of my misdemeanors that I should have liked to pull it until he howled. Anyhow, Mr. Wopsle's Roman nose so aggravated me during the recital of my misdemeanors that I should have liked to pull it until he howled. But all I had endured up to this point was nothing in comparison with the awful things that took possession of me when the pause was broken which ensued upon my sister's recital and in the pause everybody had looked at me as I felt painfully conscious with indignation and abhorrence. Yet, said Mr. Pumblechook, leading the company gently back to the theme from which that strayed. Pork, regarded as wild, is rich too, ain't it? Have a little brandy, uncle, said my sister. Oh, heavens, it had come at last. 
he would find it was weak, he would say it was weak, and I was lost. I held tight to the leg of the table underneath the cloth with both hands and awaited my fate. My sister went for the stone bottle, came back with the stone bottle, and poured his brandy out. No one else was taking any. The wretched man trifled with his glass, took it up, looked at it through the light, put it down, prolonged my misery. All this time, Mrs. Joe and Joe were briskly clearing the table for the pie and the pudding. I couldn't keep my eyes off him. Always holding tight by the leg of the table with my hands and feet, I saw the miserable creature finger his glass playfully, take it up, smile, throw his head back and drink the brandy off. Instantly afterwards, the company was seized with unspeakable consternation. Owing to his springing to his feet, turning around several times in appalling, spasmodic, whooping cough dance and rushing out of the door, he then became visible through the window, violently plunging and expectorating, making the most hideous faces and apparently out of his mind. I held on tight, while Mrs. Joe and Joe ran to him. I didn't know how I had done it, but I had no doubt I had murdered him somehow. In my dreadful situation, it was a relief when he was brought back and surveying the company all round as if they had disagreed with him, sank down in his chair and with one significant gasp, ta! I had filled up the bottle from the tar water jug. I knew he would be worse by and by. I moved the table like a medium of the present day by the vigour of the unseen hold upon it. Tar! cried my sister in amazement. Why, however could tar come there? But Uncle Pumblechook, who was omnipotent in that kitchen, wouldn't hear the word, wouldn't hear the subject, imperiously waved it all away with his hand and asked for hot gin and water. My sister, who had begun to be alarmingly meditative, had to employ herself actively in getting the gin, the hot water, the sugar and the lemon peel and mixing them. For the time being, at least, I was saved. I still held onto the leg of the table, but clutched it now with a fervour of gratitude. By degrees, I became calm enough to release my grasp and partake of pudding. Mr. Pumblechook partook of pudding. All partook of pudding. The course terminated and Mr. Pumblechook had begun to beam under the genial influence of gin and water. I began to think I should get over the day when my sister said to Joe, Clean plates. Cold. I clutched the leg of the table again immediately and pressed it to my bosom as if it had been the companion of my youth and the friend of my soul. I foresaw what was coming, and I felt this time I really was gone. You must taste, said my sister, addressing the guest with her best grace. You must taste to finish with such a delightful and delicious present of Uncle Pumblechooks. Must they? Let them not hope to taste it. You must know, said my sister, rising. It's a pie. A savoury pork pie. The company murmured their compliments. Uncle Pumblechook, sensible of having deserved well of his fellow creatures, said, quite vivaciously, all things considered, Well, Mrs. Joe, we'll do our best endeavours. Let us have a cut at the same pie. My sister went out to get it. I heard his steps proceed to the pantry. I saw Mr. Pumblechook balance his knife. I saw reawakening appetite in the Roman nostrils of Mr. Wopsle. A bit of savoury pork pie would lay atop of anything he could mention and do no harm. And I heard Joe say, You shall have some pip. I have never been so absolutely certain whether I uttered a shrill yell of terror merely in spirit or in the bodily hearing of the company. I felt I could bear no more and I must run away. I released the leg of the table and ran for my life. But I ran no farther than the house door, for there I ran head foremost into a party of soldiers with their muskets, one of whom held a pair of handcuffs to me, saying, Here you are. Look sharp. Come on. Thanks for joining me for the past few chapters of Great Expectations. 
But hold on to your top hats and petticoats because we're not done riding Dickens' wild narrative wave just yet. So do yourself a favor and stick around for the next episode. Whether you're a Dickens devotee or just here for the pip drama, I solemnly swear to maintain your great expectations. So keep those headphones handy, subscribe, and join me for the next chapter in our audiobook adventure. Until then, remember, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Until next time, this is The Page Pedestrian, signing off.